I think some of the most driven people in the world are Christians. Uh, Ellie, for instance. Do you think Dad works a little bit, quite hard or very hard? Cameron, do you think Dad works a little bit, quite hard or very hard? I won't ask Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) So many Christians. They are monumental, monumentally busy. And uh, when you you examine their lives, you find that they are are, uh, incredibly um, committed in other ways. They give away large amounts of money. They're always at church. The average observer would be um, really quite justified, potentially, in doubting that their Christian faith was based on God's free mercy and grace. Yet that's what Paul has been saying, isn't it? Paul's been saying, you get right with God not through doing all these things. You get right with God simply through trusting Christ. But a casual observer might think that actually your average Christian, particularly Christian leader's life, was a walking contradiction to that. More than that, an astute observer who has listened to Paul and heard him explaining how you get right with God simply through trusting Christ, might say, yeah, Paul, but you've been a bit selective with the Bible, aren't you? There's tons in the Bible about what you should do. There's lots of law in the Bible. In fact, the obvious thing that an observer sees when they see someone become a Christian is that they start obeying a whole lot of do's and don'ts from the Bible. Come off it, Paul. You're pulling the wool over my eyes. More than that, actually, Paul was um, uh, deeply conscious that he had a specific uh, audience that whom he was writing to. In Rome, there were Gentiles, but there were Jews as well, and uh, Jewish Christians. And in the whole of chapter 4 of, of uh, his letter to the Romans is addressed specifically to those Jewish Christians. And he imagines them saying effectively what I'm imagining other people saying. Paul, you have been um, a little bit economical with the truth here, mate. After all, don't we call the Old Testament that we trust, don't we sometimes just call it the law? Because that's what it's full of. Paul's um, going to say to us, say to those, those Jewish Christians, and he's going to say to us, no, he really, really meant what he was saying. He's going to say, specifically, that the whole 
Bible from beginning to end is about having faith in God and faith in Christ. That is the sum of everything that the Bible is pointing us to. And after he has established that, he will come back to me and Dan and Matt and anyone else who is monumentally busy in serving God. And he will ask us to examine our lives in the light of what he's saying. That's where we're going. And uh, uh, first of all, we must look at the first five verses. There he establishes being right with God from the beginning in the Bible, he says, was always about faith. The faith he's been talking about in chapters 1 one to 3. He introduces us to Abraham, the, the, the great father of the Jewish people, the great father, uh, the, 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 the great patriarch of the Old Testament. <coughs> what then should we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter, he says. He points us to a key moment in Abraham's life, verse 3. What does scripture say, he says? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting, as you can see from the footnotes, from, from uh, um, an incident early on in Abraham's life, or at least his recorded life, in Genesis 50, chapter 15, verse 6. God, God had promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the, on the seashore, that he would be the father of many nations. And then it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Three things we need to notice from that sentence. The key thing is that Abraham believed God. Abraham, you could translate it, trusted God. The second thing is that, uh, is that uh, Genesis 15 uses uses the word credited or reckoned. God, God, God made a decision in his mind, in his heart, like, 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 um, like an accountant reckoning the figures. God reckoned something. And this is what he reckoned, says Paul. He reckoned that that belief in God made Abraham right with him. He credited it to him, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Right at the beginning, this, this, this father of, 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 of the, uh, in the whole Bible got right with God through trusting him. And that's completely the opposite of the kind of reckoning and transaction that happens when you work to be uh, right with God. Verse 4, the one who worked to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. We all know about that. We do our bit and we demand, therefore, that our employer does his. We do our bit of work and the employer pays us the agreed amount of work. There is, there is an obligation on the part of the, the senior person to respond appropriately to what we have done. That is how works works. But true righteousness, being right with God, works in a different way. 
Verse 5, the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That, that threefold statement then, faith credited as righteousness. That is not an obligation. That is a gift. That is a decision that God makes out of his own free will. But it is a decision that God consistently makes. He never makes any other decision. That those who trust him, he will reckon that as enough to put them right with him. That's what the Bible says, says the Apostle at the beginning. Consistently says from the very beginning that is how you get right with God. Then, then uh, he adds another bit of evidence from the Old Testament. He's talked about Abraham, the great father of, uh, uh, of the faith. Now he turns to talk about King David. If you wanted the two most prominent witnesses in, in the Old Testament, you would uh, have to go a long way to find better than them. The greatest king that Israel ever had and the great father of the nation of Israel. Verses 6 to 8, he says, look at David. David understood that his fundamental status was just as a freely forgiven sinner. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You know, David, more than anyone else, could have said something else. Blessed is the one who, like me, devotes his whole life to serving God. Blessed is the one who, likes me, like me, has risked his life in battle again and again and again um, to, to serve God. Blessed is, the, the, blessed is the one who takes responsibility to lead God's people. But no, David knew when he comes before God, the only thing he contributes to his relationship with God is his sin. And the thing that God contributes to his relationship with him is the free forgiveness of that sin that makes him a blessed person. Nothing else. Nothing that David has done to earn it. He comes before God as a sinner every day of his life. And he simply has to trust God that God looks on him and forgives him. Extraordinary, uh, extraordinary truth, and so so appropriate that, in, in in a sense, he chooses David. I mean, David in his story not only has great uh, feats for God; he, of course, he has the great sin of his of, of his adultery with, with with Bathsheba. We don't know whether he wrote this psalm before or after that, and it doesn't matter. Before and after, he had his sin demonstrated to him so vividly when he fell into adultery. He knew that his status before God was that he was a forgiven sinner. Hence, when he did sin in that terrible and heinous way, well, it did enormous damage. 
enormous damage. But never did he feel he had totally lost his relationship with God. He bowed before God, he prayed to God, he sought God's forgiveness and he knew he could still have it. So, so important for us. Such an important thing for us. You and I may make a terrible mess of our lives. We may do terrible things. We may hurt other people in terrible ways. And there will be consequences for that. And it is, it, it is terrifying to think of it. But it need not separate you from God forever. Because your relationship with God was never predicated on your sinlessness anyway. From beginning to end, we come before God as forgiven sinners. Rico Tice likes to put it in this way, the author of the Christianity Explored course. You're more wicked than you ever imagined, he says. And more loved than you ever dreamed. That's what David found. And he wrote a psalm about it. And that's what we enjoy as we come to God and trust in him. There's Abraham there, who trusted God and that was good enough for God. There's David then, who simply knew he came before God in need of God's free offer of forgiveness. It was always about simply trusting in God and receiving that gift from God. Um, In everybody's life, says um, the Apostle, before any response. That's the the line that he develops in verses 9 to 12. He's imagining someone saying, surely, Paul, salvation... must be about faith combined with works. Yes, faith in God, but, 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 but works must make a contribution. The things that we do, the response that we make, must make a contribution to our salvation. Perhaps, because he's imagining Jews, perhaps they say, especially our circumcision. Abraham was circumcised. He responded to God, and that response to God was really important. David was circumcised as well. There must be something that you do to be saved, says the objector. Well, let's think about that carefully, says, um, uh, says Paul. Is this blessedness of being a forgiven sinner only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that, Abraham, that, that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness... Under what circumstances was it credited to? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after. It was before. Read the story, you'll find that's absolutely right. He gets circumcised and his family in in, uh, Genesis 17. (coughs) But God has already declared him righteous on the basis of his trust in God in Genesis 15. He's there. He's okay with God. From that moment on, from Genesis 15 verse 6, whatever happens in Genesis 17 could not have actually been about his salvation. 
Because he's already right with God. Back in Genesis 15 verse 6. Circumcision in the Old Testament is only a, a sign. It is only a, in a sense a visible seal, he says, of something that has already happened, verse 11. He received circumcision, uh, circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It had something of a role, he says, that response of Abraham. But it never saved him. He never had that uh, role in his life. It was his faith that saved him. And so, says the Apostle, Abraham demonstrates that salvation is for absolutely everyone who believes. Verse 11. So then he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteous might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, Jews who, who mark their belonging to the Jewish people by circumcision, they are welcome to come to God and to be put right with him. But so are Gentiles, who never ever responded in circumcision. They are not required to. The two of them stand together before God with absolutely equal opportunity to be put right with him. And how do they do it? Well, circumcision has nothing to do with it, he says. It is just trusting Christ. It is just having faith. Whatever role a, any practical response beyond that has in our life, it does not save us, he's saying. So then, verses 13 to 17. Salvation was never about the law. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he, had, that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Law had its value in the Old Testament, but it never saved anyone and that for uh, in particular, one reason. No one ever managed to obey it properly. So law, he says, brings wrath. And therefore, if it is based on law, the promise becomes a dead letter. You know, I... I, I, could, I could give you any promise that I like if it was based on total obedience to me. You could never cash it in. Because no one will ever be totally obedient to me, let alone to God. It's a worthless piece of paper. But God was determined to make promises that he keeps. And so he made his promises, not on the basis of us being able to obediently serve his law, 
that would make it nothing. But simply on the basis that we would trust him. His promises stand only because they are based on faith. So then we have deep confidence. Verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed, notice, to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all, as it is written. I have made you a father of many (coughs) nations. It's guaranteed, he says, to all people. Because it's based on the one thing and one thing only. That we simply trust God for it. So there we have it then. To those doubters who come to Paul and who say, yeah, 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 Paul, but you're, you're, you're only telling half the truth. No, he's saying I'm telling the whole truth about how you get right with God. That is so, so important to, for us. We who, who in our doctrine and uh, in our creed say that we are saved by faith, evangelical Christians, so often slip away from that in our minds. I, I can only be right with God if I perform certain things. Surely I can only be right with God if I make sure I have a proper quiet time every day. Surely I can only be right with God if I read the Bible a certain amount every day. Surely I can only be right... Uh, right with God if I manage to um, behave well at work and uh, don't let God down in the workplace surely I can only be right with God if, if, uh, if I steer clear of that besetting sin that I've struggled with all my life and yet I find myself doing every day if I don't manage those things in my day then I can't go to bed at peace with God, well yes you can you can go to bed at peace with God because you can come to God at the end of the day and you can say Heavenly Father I, I messed up again Heavenly Father I, I didn't live the best life that I wish I could have lived today but I have trusted Christ for forgiveness Please forgive me. And you are totally right with God. He holds nothing against you. His forgiveness is full and complete. He was not remotely taken by surprise by the ways that you failed today or yesterday. And he will not be taken by surprise by tomorrow or even that catastrophic failure that is coming down the road and that if you knew you would be absolutely horrified. Nothing is going to take him by surprise. Jesus died for those sins. And as we come to him like David, as a sinner in need of forgiveness, like Abraham, as someone who simply trusts God, 
it will be credited to us as righteousness. This is what we believe if we are Bible Christians. This is how we live. So what about those Christians who run around like headless chickens then? What about those, those ultra-busy Christians? What, what about all these, these things that every Christian seems to do, like filling half of their life with going to church meetings and, uh, and so on? How, how does all that fit? Well, it, it may be a denial of their faith. It may be. Even in people like me. It may be that we have slipped into thinking, I, I can only do right by God, be right with God, if I lead this kind of life. If that is the case, we are to be deeply pitied. And we are in deep trouble. But it may be something different too. You see, there is a kind of commitment that Abraham, uh, that, that uh, Paul speaks of that Abraham exemplifies. The end from verses 18 and onwards. Paul describes in Abraham what that trust in God did look like in his life. And what it looked like was not actually frenetic running around trying to do things for God. But it was an utter devotion and entrusting of his whole self to God. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. The, the hope that he had lost was the hope of having a child. God had promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and yet he didn't have a single child. And more than that, his wife was aged. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Just a moment, we should have, uh, hesitate. And notice he says he did not waver through unbelief. He doesn't say he did not waver at all. If you read Abraham's life, he wavered all the time. But there is a difference between um, uh, doubt and unbelief. Doubt is saying, Lord, I know you've said that, and, and I, please help me to believe it. Unbelief is saying, I will not believe what you say, and I'm walking away from you. He did not waver through unbelief. Um, um, regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promised this is why it was credited to him as righteousness the words it was credited were, to him were written not for him alone but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. You see, Abraham said, 
I'm going to trust God with my life. From the moment that he said that, he was right with God. And he hadn't done anything. But in his life it actually meant that he was finally called to risk the life of his only son that he had. Reasoning that God could raise the dead. So too we, says Paul, we trust in Christ who was raised from the dead. Our hope is resurrection life. And we are called to be as radical as Abraham in saying this life is not now what I live for, what I trust in, what I devote myself to. It is the life eternal that Jesus promises me. And that may call you to do nothing but sit and wait and trust. A large part of Abraham's life was like that. It will not throw you necessarily into a frenzy of activity. But it will call you to say in your heart, I'm now not going to live for this life. My focus, my attention, is resurrection life. If it is that faith that has led some of us in this room to be active, then that is okay. It led Abraham even to the point of sacrificing his own son. But that is not what makes us right with God. What makes us right with God is at the end of the day, we trust Christ and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't know what life God is calling you to. The New Testament is full of warnings, but it might involve enormous sacrifice. And we cannot uh, uh, avoid that. But it will always be a life in which our confidence in our salvation rests only and entirely on our trust in Christ. It has always been the case. It will always be the case. All of those things we do well, they, as far as salvation is concerned, they're incidentals. When I stand before Jesus, he'll just ask me one question. Did you trust me?